Really True Fiction is a podcast exploring famous stories to discover the wisdoms, lessons, insights, and ideas therein. Be advised that there will be heavy spoilers for whatever story we are discussing in this episode, as well as potential spoilers for other stories. Check episode notes or social media posts for additional spoilers. Please note that this podcast contains so many bad words and so many crude observations. If this is not your jam, please don't bring the toast. Mason and I'm David Parker. David, what is your stance on curb stomping? Ooh, <laughs> I think generally in all places and at all times it is wrong. So, okay, but like your stance would be more like beside the curb. I just on think the you curb. shouldn't stomp on people's heads in general, but <laughs> I mean, maybe curb stomping is the more humane way to go about it. <laughs> like it kills you fast. There's almost no way that's true. <laughs> There's no. I don't know. I don't, I, you know, this is the only time that I was ever introduced to the concept of curb stomping. You'd I, never heard about I'd curb stomping? I'd never even heard about it before until I saw this movie, yeah. Uh, and what is this movie? <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> this movie is American History X. <laughs> yes. So today on the, episode, on the uh, podcast, we are doing the 1998 film American History X, uh, written by, I believe, David McKenna. And directed by Tony Kay, and starring Edward Norton and Edward Furlong, who is generally better known for being John Connor in Terminator 2 Judgment Day, which Very, is an, an enjoyable film. An incredible movie. And then I think, I know Edward Furlong was in a few other movies, but I would say this was his only other huge movie that he was in that I can remember of. Or remember was him this being movie in. supposed to be a blockbuster? I I was only I well. Was I don't young, know if it was supposed to be a blockbuster. But it did become one. So if this movie came out in '98. I was 11 when this movie came out, so I obviously didn't watch it <laughs> when right. it came no, out. Right? No. I remember it from more when I was about like I think I was probably 16 or 17 the first time I saw it. So it would have been like 2003, 2004. And I don't know if it was a blockbuster, but I definitely remember by that time you know, early 2000s, it was like a something below a blockbuster, but above a cult classic. Like, yeah, like every a, every single person I knew knew about this movie, kind of thing. Yeah, it wasn't a Donnie Darko where, like, only a few people necessarily knew about yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, this is this was a movie that, obviously, there was a lot to talk would about. Would you put it. it in the Patriot category? Like, the everyone Patriot. knew about the Patriot like the uh, no i mean i don't think it was no it, so no uh, like if <laughs> if oddly enough the patriot is your <laughs> benchmark for blockbuster <laughs> I, but it you know appropriate i guess cuz it's of the era no this movie was definitely not that not that big not that big when it came out i don't remember and i mean i wouldn't have been paying attention when i was 11 either to a movie like this it's much more you know that time i said but again when when i was old enough to watch this movie and have its impact on me as it did. To me, this was the kind of movie that people talked about. Oh, Fight Club. Yes, Seven. Yes. American History okay. X. Like yeah. it was because it's of that era, you know, mid to late 90s. 
and the style is very like even though it's obviously not david fincher there's no, a definite no. david fincher feel like even even grittier than david fincher it's interesting that they uh cinematography like just in the way they did the cinematography with the black and white being the past and the present being in color i don't think i had ever seen that before before i saw this film and i i thought that was a a cool little trick that they were playing yeah i would say <laughs> of all of the things we've done on the podcast this would be in the top third of most famous. Yes, yes, so far, <laughs> you know, depending on when you're listening to this. <laughs> yes, uh, yeah, good point. <laughs> so we're probably guessing a lot of you have seen this movie. Probably a lot of you, maybe not for a long time, again, because of how culturally resonant it was when it came out and for the several years after, uh, I would say. <laughs> like any great, not good, like any great piece of art, the themes are recursive and perennial and keep coming back and keep coming back and keep coming back and even though this movie came out 21 years ago watching it in 2019 you're like whoa okay <laughs> there is yeah, a lot still addressing a real problem contemporarily <laughs> relevant yeah to it and again with a movie like this where it's like you have to walk the knife's razor edge because of the uh, content and the subject matter you, ha- you have to have the deftest of hands and sharpest of eyes to deal with this kind of stuff that's in this movie and do it in a way that is so meaningful, which I think, I obviously think so because we're talking well, yeah. about this movie and how it impacted us and what we, what we got from it. So even though, again, you've probably all seen it, quick plot rundown is that there's a family central family called the vineyards and the story is told chronologically in two different styles the black and white scenes are the past things that have happened i think about three three and a half years before yeah Yeah, the color most of them there's a couple that are like there's the one with his dad at the table that i think is earlier yeah Uh, but most of it is like right leading up until right the murder so basically derek who's uh played by edward norton who i mean i this is like incredible of all of his unbelievable performances this one might be the most unbelievableist i would the, say they certainly help by like taking these long shots of him just standing there and then he's just manipulating his face and you're feeling the yeah. emotions that and then in black through. and white especially yeah too. yeah so <laughs> The color scenes are present day, which presumably is, you know, the late 90s, uh, Los Angeles. And then the black and white scenes are three years and maybe a little bit longer before then. So I guess maybe this is set in like 95 or 96 then, maybe a couple years before it came out because they do talk about the Rodney King affair, which I think was... (laughs) Crap, now I'm doing dates. I think the Rodney King affair... Or, like, well, the, when the cops beat him up. I think that was 92. So that was discussion in one of the scenes. They're sitting around the table talking. Anyway, so the black and white is in the past. The color is today, what's happening. And the vineyard, Derek, is the oldest son. And Dan Daniel is the next oldest son. And he's played by Edward Furlong. And this is a family grappling with... Tra- skin- tragedy, too. Tragedy, but then tragedy turned into skinhead racism of the most disgusting shade and hue I yeah, would the, say. like basically like 
legitimately worshiping Nazism. And, yes, and, and unashamedly, putting, unashamedly. Yeah, I mean tattooing it on your body. Yeah, right? yeah. Uh, so Derek, the older one, Edward Norton, he has throughout the movie, and you and it's like it's crazy because you get it right in the first scene, so starkly in your face. He has a massive swastika tattoo uh, on his upper left pectoral muscle. And he, you know, he got pretty ripped for this movie. And so he's showing it all the time, basically. And uh, that in itself is almost a character in the way that obviously that symbol makes other people react to him in one way or the other as it does when they see it. And so as the narrative unfolds, it's a little bit convoluted in that you are getting bits of the past that give bits of context to the present but then you get more bits of the past that give more context to the present but also even more context to the present that you saw even before that other scene so that's what's like it's really cool that it does it basically Derek and Derek has been in jail for three years he's getting out on this day and the people and and Derek had been like a a leader of the skinhead movement the neo-nazi movement of is it Venice Beach? I think yeah, it's, it's Venice, Venice Beach, Beach, right? Yeah. So he's kind of like a local hero for all the racists. <laughs> <laughs> and, this little Nazi organization. And you see why in a lot of the flashback scenes as he is so... He, he combines maximum articulation with maximum viciousness in his delivery. And so he just commands the respect of all of these other skinheads in a way that is like it's impressive how much he has their respect and attention and yet it's obviously at the same time so scary and uh, disheartening <laughs> you know yeah there's, well, both, there's a it's, fear it's and the, a sadness all the, wrapped the, into one the dark side of charisma right like and he yeah. does seem to have i mean he's being used by this cameron alexander guy as his kind of puppet so the intellectual or let's say the philosopher or the intellect behind behind this charismatic leader is this this Cameron Alexander guy who never takes any risks really and and has basically is pushing these ideas out into the world but is kind of a coward whereas Derek Edward Norton character not a coward at all willing to just go in there and do what he has to do yeah he goes he he goes into the shit all the time himself to lead the in, in Nazi sense, soldiers. Yeah, in a sense, he's kind of that what you expect from a leader, right? He he'll, he's taking the risks. Like one of the things I read about Julius Caesar is like the, his men would follow him to the ends of the earth because he would go to the front line and like, right. charge with them. Right? Yeah, and it's this idea of well, like what a rush. The ultimate leader is in front of you in the most dangerous spot that yeah, they like, could be, willing in. to go there with you. I mean, you're gonna you're yeah. gonna really believe in him in that moment. Totally. And so then that means that throughout the movie... Oh, so when Derek goes to jail, Danny is 14. And when he comes out, he's 17. And so he's Danny is in high school. And Danny's principal, Bob Sweeney, uh, Mr. Sweeney, who is a black guy, which I only point out in things like this movie where it's all about race and yeah. the relevance yeah. therein. Because <laughs> Danny has written a... I think it's like a report on civil rights Using leaders. Yeah, so he wrote My Mein Kampf as uh, portraying Hitler as a civil rights activist, basically. And it's like, okay, well, 
<laughs> we've seen this in your brother. <laughs> yeah. And uh, like to Sweeney's credit, he's really trying to put him on a different path kind of thing, right? And, and the interesting part was that Sweeney was Derek's teacher in high school. So he's obviously been moving his way up in, in school too and doing a good job in his job, which is kind of antithetical to this whole theory that – yeah, the, um, black people, the white are, supremacy theory, yeah, exactly that they don't work hard or any of these things, which is interesting. Yeah, yeah, totally. That that's a good. I didn't even make that connection, but yeah, how he, I mean, obviously he's the principal. He's already <laughs> been promoted. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And so Sweeney believes in Daniel because he's hope like he doesn't give up on kids, even the most disgusting of kids that he sees, I guess. And so, basically, as Derek is released from prison. They go to like this neo-Nazi party to that's celebrating all this, and they're like trying to. They're really excited to show Derek all the new things that have happened. Again, interspersed with all of the like viscerally impactful scenes uh, in the past, showing Derek at his racist heyday, and all of like the ways and that, his murder before we get to the party, right? Like the murder that he commits. Well, yeah, the very first scene of the movie is. Uh, which murder are you referring to? Oh no, you're right. You're right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's like there's the the very first scene of the movie that they come back to later. Cause they, yes. So right. the reason I started right. the episode with a question about curb stomping is, is that that's later in the movie. Yes, <laughs> yeah, you're but right. yeah, the very first scene of the movie, Danny witnesses Derek kill two gangsters who are trying. Crips, to, I believe they're Crips. Yeah, like Crips yeah. trying to steal their car or Dan, Derek's car. And Derek comes out of the house with a gun. Like Danny tells Derek that these two guys, these two black guys are trying to steal his car. He comes out of the house with a gun, kills one of them right away, shoots the other one. And then um, we don't see it at the beginning, but later in the movie reveals that Derek has curb stomped this other guy that he's shot already right in front of Danny, his 14 year old brother. As Danny's trying to like stop him from doing it to running out of the house and saying, Derek, no. So again, there's a lot in that moment to talk about later too, Mm. because that's one of the most important scenes of the movie for sure. And so then we basically, as you get to the beginning of the third act of this movie, you are, painfully aware of how horrible Derek has been and then you can easily see why Danny is kind of this way now in the present day and yet Derek there's a really long segment where it shows in the past Derek in jail and how all of the twists and turns that happen to basically make him have a change of heart about his worldview and so and now that Derek is out of prison, like before all the throwback scenes, Derek has no hair. He's bald. He's a skinhead. When he comes out of jail, his hair is full and lush and nice again. And like, there's a few jokes people make, about, oh, we got to shave that hair. We got to get you back. And then Derek's like, no, no, no. And then there's a great little vignette kind of thing. Yeah, the vignette's great. And then it's a beautiful moment that Derek is able to share with Danny. Basically, Derek is in this story. He tells him about jail, which we'll again talk about more later. He's disabusing Danny of Danny's prejudice because Derek was disabused of it himself while in prison, right? Which and, is and interestingly enough, well, we can talk about it more. But interestingly enough, he was initially disabused of his idea that white people stick together and have this moral code and all these. Yeah, things. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was one of the major breaks. I think there was a bigger break. Well, and then, and then obviously when he's protect, so then then he's disabused of that. Then he alienates himself, and in his state of alienation, is protected. And then throughout the whole movie, like after 
Sweeney has found that Danny wrote this my mind Kampf Hitler as a civil rights activist bullshit paper. He said he throws in the trash and says, You have another day to write a new one. Uh, his paper is called American History X. So, you know, roll credits. And the assignment is in a day, Danny has to write about Derek, his brother. And so there is a voiceover narrative that happens throughout the movie, which is actually Danny writing, reading, this, paper. writing this paper and reading it out loud for us, the movie audience, to hear. Which is, as the movie goes on, it becomes like a really weirdly beautiful meditation on this horrible, these horrible things that are happening. And then the end of the movie, I mean, I won't spoil it. Well, I guess we have to talk about it at the end. So the end of the movie is Danny gets, is the victim of a school shooting in the bathroom by very tragically, as it happens, a bully who happens to be black and how that animus was relevant and regnant throughout the entire movie for Danny. It wasn't just Derek's. (laughs) <laughs> flee from terror and the things he was doing it also was it got danny cut up in all of it too etc kind of thing right and yeah and, and there was this it seemed weird relationship between the bully and danny uh where danny was constantly standing up to him but i think there was also the the past behavior of his brother and kind of the knowledge that this is his brother he starts off his paper by saying Whenever anyone looks at me, they see my brother. Yeah. And I think that was a big part of the murder as well is, well, we got to get back at this guy for killing some of our own. Mm -hmm. And then the very end of the movie is uh, similar shots to the beginning of the movie where there's an ocean. They're on like one of the beaches on California and it's like um, sunset and it's really pretty. And then uh, voiceover, the end of the American History X paper that Danny has been written. We hear his voice again after he's been killed. And we hear a very famous Abraham Lincoln quote, which is very nice. So anyway, this is going to be, for me, a little bit of a... Just watching this movie it takes a lot out of you emotionally, I think. M- maybe more than... Because there's other movies about race. And there's other movies that are weirdly uncomfortable. And then there's even movies that are more explicitly about Nazis than this movie. But there's this movie has such an edge to it and such a visceral like right into you kind of sensation to it that it deserves so much gravitas <laughs> to talk about it because of what it is saying and doing yeah it's going after probably one of the most emotional and difficult realities that we experience in human society which is hate and tribalism and violence and it's doing all of that while humanizing the characters you wouldn't necessarily want to humanize yeah the people Uh, you want to hate yeah the people you want to hate and i think that is where its power comes from yeah because it's reminding us that you know it's reminding us that even the nazis are humans right (laughs) despite being evil and, uh, and and perpetrating these murders and these this hate crimes and this. and and importantly not unreachable yeah right? i think that's because, the most important because thing because derek does have a almost total mea culpa type of change of heart in this movie yeah where he owns yeah. what he did and he said and he doesn't pretend like he didn't do it and he regrets it and he wants to be different well, and there's that moment where he says to Danny, I murdered someone, and even then I didn't feel the anger go away. Mm-hmm. Right? And so a lot of it is that it's not 
the anger or sorry it's not the belief system even that has made him want to like push him into this it's the anger and i think you see with why his brother's murdered and all that that's anger too that is pushing these people to believe these things it's to kind of deal with their anger yeah and their like their perceived unjust circumstances in life that it's that well I mean, this undersells it, but it's literally true, is that they're finding scapegoats. Yes, for, exactly. For the, the things that they're saying and doing. Oh, my family didn't make it like we're told we're supposed to in the American dream. Well, it's obviously the Mexicans' fault kind of yeah, thing, right? Or, or the people who didn't do as well on the test, obviously they were black and white guys do better on tests. So, like, I mean, it's just bullshit like that. Right? Yeah. And so... It's useful to say right now, I think, that both David and I are super aware that we have given ourselves a pretty thankless job here where we have to mine the lives of uh, disgusting racists for <laughs> real-life thoughts that are worth having. And yet, I, ha- I I don't know, maybe I'll just give an admission about myself. When I first thought about doing this movie, American History X, my first, my my like gut reaction was like, oh yes, so good, gotta do it. My next thought was like, oh fuck, <laughs> that movie is <laughs> how, all about race and yeah. Nazis. <laughs> how am I gonna talk about what, this? Yeah. What is a worse topic <laughs> to touch to even <laughs> begin to talk about? And then what I think is my most philosophic and compassion reflected thought on this was like, well, okay, this is where you want to earn your money as a thinker and this is where you want to earn your well (laughs) metaphorically yeah (laughs) this is where you want to earn your stripes as um, not being scared to take on the hardest content and story and topic and it's important for me to to let all of you know that i am super aware of how fraught this movie is and how both dave and i are are approaching this topic with a lot of gravity a lot of respect and a lot of appreciation for the necessity of this because even though <laughs> my limbic system, everything in my brain is like, don't do American History X, don't do American History X, it'll be just so much easier not to. The fortitudinal part of my <sighs> trying to ethically better the world says, well, you know what? You got to take risks and you got to do the hardest stuff because that's where you're going to come out the strongest. So. That's so, why we're doing this yeah. one. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, I mean, I think if we're not willing to talk about the bad things in the world and we're just uh we just avoid them and refuse to address them and because they're too hard and people have so much emotion and pain and suffering around these ideas. Well, I mean, like how are we supposed to reduce the suffering? Well, and digging into these types of psychologies is exactly how you can incrementally mitigate them when you see them way early kind of thing. And even and, in, even in yourself. Yes. Right? Oh, definitely. And uh so <laughs> let's go. <laughs> One of the most interesting and I guess prescient things that this movie does is contextualize the vineyard family's circumstance where there's an early scene, black and white, where it shows Derek as... In the first black and white scenes, it looks like Derek is probably about maybe 20, 22. Like, he's, he's, in a, he's a very young adult kind of thing. 
But then there's this one scene where he looks like he's maybe about 16 or 17. And it's um, just after his dad has been killed. So Derek and Daniel's dad was a fireman. He was killed while putting out a fire in what they say was a crack house, I think. And uh, there's a news reporter there talking to the family of this poor fireman that's been killed. And Derek uses that opportunity to go on a diatribe about how much he hates immigrants and uh, people who come to this country and uses gangsters. swear word or a slang for racist terms. For yeah, I mean, and, and then he... He uh, finishes his diatribe with talking about uh, using the N-word for all the people who <laughs> killed his dad and how basically they're exploiters. I think the, his line is, minorities come to this country to exploit it. So you're getting like a massive picture of his sadness and pain and how he's just taking the most troubled. <laughs> That's, again, like it's hard to find the right superlative for what he the way he's dealing with his pain and suffering is just to go down the darkest path of whatever catharsis he can find is the darkest we're not even just the thing is this, we're not the, talking about yeah, bad it's probably things. The, darkest, about the worst things the, the darkest way you can go with something like that you're like fully on giving in to hate i mean it's that old you know fear leaves to anger anger leads to hate hate leads to the dark side right <laughs> and uh, and i think this has definitely led down that path we can see it going you know what's the fear well the fear that's implanted in him is his dad saying you know there's propaganda and conspiracy being perpetrated by black people right yeah. and then the anger is look at what the black people did to us look at what they did to my family just because just because his father was murdered by a man who happened to be black in a, and that, in a crack house so yeah. it was like a junkie per, like yeah was probably was wasn't even aware of what he was doing but right. i mean cuz he's probably high and then what does the anger lead to it leads to hate mm-hmm. and he spends the rest of his life until he ends up in jail and even a lot of the time in jail just consumed not just by a raw emotion of hate but an intellectualized hate an ideological hate because i think that's the most dangerous form of hate i mean mm-hmm. every one of us has experienced anger and frustration and and potentially hate but when you take that and you justify the hate yeah and when you see that building with derek the, his ideology is the last thing he lets go of. Yeah. Right? Like, he lets go of every person in his life. Even his friends in jail, he lets go of. Who are, who are keeping him alive. Like, he yeah. gives up on life before he gives up on his ideology. Yeah. Yeah, he has a conscious decision to be like, okay, well, I will let whoever wants to kill me now in jail kill me, rather than um, renounce the purity of my worldview kind of thing. Which I think is the most scary part of these ideologies. The, the frightening nature of humans desiring an in-group and an out-group, desiring a scapegoat, desiring a way to interpret the world that doesn't make them responsible for their own situations. And he's clinging to this. He's clinging to that being the explanation for his suffering. He's clinging to that being the explanation for his... In a, that he's in jail. He's clinging to that idea that he's superior for some reason yeah because to really look at reality and say oh mm-hmm. actually i'm not better than these people in fact i'm just a person and not only that life can be shitty and i can suffer well and i mean <laughs> definitely all that existential stuff and yet interestingly in this movie 
the only references that Derek ever makes to slavery are how it was so long ago and people just need to move the fuck on. Or yeah, it was like 150 years ago. How have they not figured out how to overcome it yet or something like that? Yeah, so like, I mean, (laughs) it's worse than lip service to, I love how Christopher Hitchens puts it where he talks about how slavery is America's original sin. Uh, I like that tie-in. It's especially humorous if you understand (laughs) Hitchens' take on religion. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But um, he was never beyond uh, making good parallels when he could. <laughs> yes. I mean, his parallels were so good, he could have been in geometry. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> you got to be clitting me. <laughs> and so, yeah, he's, um, there's just no, I mean, obviously, this goes without saying, but it's useful to even notice that with the psychology of someone like Derek, who is just so hell bent on making all the evidence fit his worldview as opposed to making his worldview fit the evidence. I mean, it's, it's not even cognitive dissonance. It's like cognitive, stay the fuck out of my head kind of thought where it's like any potential argument against his points are immediately shot down and trivialized or ignored or given as bullshit. And he just moves right past them. Right. So it's an interesting, I mean, it's like, Edward Norton's portrayal of this person, Derek, is so amazing about how he's just like, he's just flying past things that might be counter to his thought process, which to me seem like every time have a lot of weight to them. And this does. And then focusing on the really tiny things that are maybe he might be like a tiny bit right about, but not for why he's trying to be right about them kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, there's a term in Catholicism called uh, cafeteria Catholic. And the idea is you go down the buffet and you pick the things you like about it and you leave out the rest. And he seems to be doing that with reality, right? He's, he's just like anything that confirms his bias. Like he's, he's living in a constant state of confirmation bias. Any event that comes into his world is suddenly interpreted through the lens of race. Yeah. Always. There's a really, there's a couple really interesting context setting scenes that I wanted to bring up because there's things in them that made me really think. And so one of them is, um, there's a really horrible scene where they trash a super, all the skinheads of Venice Beach trash a supermarket and like do really terrible things to some of the employees. And the reason they're trashing this supermarket is because it's apparently the owner of the supermarket is hiring illegal immigrants to America and then <laughs> giving jobs to people instead of good, hardworking Americans type of thing, which again is total bullshit because <laughs> like these, again, like working a cashier at a shitty supermarket is <laughs> not the job people are wanting <laughs> that are being <laughs> stolen from them by the Mexicans kind of thing. Uh, yeah. You know, there's just, just there doesn't seem to me anyway to be a, an in- a pounding down of the pavement well, to pick well, apples <laughs> and do cashiers at, at shitty supermarkets and <laughs> like do gardening. Well, while, while you're while you're right, I, I think this is an interesting point that should be dug into is that often the people that are the most inclined to these ideologies of hate and racism are poorer and more destitute. And, totally, yeah, that's and I true. think. I heard once something that that has always stuck with me is racism is often perpetrated by people on on the lower end of society of a certain race, and it's 
primarily because they want to feel better about themselves in some way and they want to believe that someone must be less than them. And I think if we go back to Mark Twain and Huckleberry Finn with Huck's dad, he was this degenerate alcoholic, but like when it came to black people, he suddenly felt so superior yeah, and he hated true. the idea that there was a there was free black people. Now that's a different time, but I think it's the same principle that applies here is when you're Blaming the world for your problems. Yeah, that's true. So there is a there's a definite element of poverty, and you see it later in the movie too. How like all the entire I mean, they've moved in the present day. Like it seems like in the past, this vineyard family has a really nice suburban home, and in the present day, they're living in this like really kind of uh, not exactly Soviet looking apartment block but definitely not a beautiful type of well, apartment I mean, they condo, don't have enough room either. for like nobody has they're their all room. living in yeah it looks like it's an apartment designed for maybe two or three people and there's five of them living in there so it's just not no. up to up to snuff and i right? think largely i mean you can that's because their father died and there and there was what six kids in the family or uh, four two, two there's boys. six of them in the family four yes, kids yes but it did make me think because like they're derek Edward Norton has this massive speech before they go trash this supermarket about immigration. It's basically centered on immigration and how all these minorities are coming to America to take the jobs and how, like... It's took our jobs! Yeah, yeah, right? <laughs> but way more, the fork in his tongue is so evident in these types of scenes. And it just kind of made me think a little bit about how how hard it is to have a nuanced view on immigration. (laughs) Because if you are in any sense for immigration, you risk sharing the side of the table with uh, like these disgusting racists. You mean opposed (laughs) immigration? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like if you have, yeah, it's a restrictionism. If If you have any for no no more immigration yeah yeah, yeah. Like, if, like, you're, if you're if you're if you're yeah like for anything like a i don't even know the right term so like a sort of sensical immigration policy well, kind of like isolationism or yeah like if you want to like close the borders down well yeah but like closing the borders is to me the end of the spectrum well, right yeah, of but, like but that's interesting because like look at a country like japan right right they don't let anyone be or, or switzerland they're not generally seen as these, you know, pariahs of international society, and yet they have closed borders. But it's like you said, it seems to be, and I think, I'll get to why I think this is, but it seems to me that in the West, we've we've made that kind of, we've taken that and said, well, that's racism. And I think, yeah. I think that's because of Western values, which promote individualism and yeah, and more than groups, and so it, it's antithetical to everything we've kind of built as a society to say mm-hmm. that someone it's, can't come in. It's true. It does seem more hypocritical for a country like the United States or Canada to be um, choosy about the people who come in than it does for like Japan, <laughs> because the ethos of historical Japan. And then, I mean, I'm not an expert of Japanese history, but it doesn't seem to me like the ethos of Japan has been to promote that sort of cosmopolitanism no and they've never and really so been they're not an really individualistic like, society they're very um they work they, yeah. they're, it's very communitarian. So they're not really like they're not meeting their own they're not not meeting their own standards kind of thing which is kind of is what the united states is not meeting if it's being too 
heavy-handed on the isolationist side of the Well, and ledger, Derek even, right? even brings up the Statue of Liberty, right? Give me your broken, your tired... This is the concept upon which the United States is built. And then, uh, interestingly, again, Derek's psychology, he twists that into like, well, we're tired, we're hungry, we're poor, and we already live here kind of thing. (laughs) Yeah. You know? Yeah. Which, again, has also been the refrain of the people living in the United States when every new wave of immigration has come. From oh, forever, forever time. Like I there mean, was a time when you know it was the Irish who yeah, were the ones the, who weren't welcome, or the kind Italians. Of yeah, or, yeah. So what it made me interestingly think about is this really. I mean, it shouldn't be a mind bending idea, but I think it can be in this kind of era. Is the it's this Eric Weinstein had this um, cool term he used called a xenophilic restrictionist. Ooh. So a xenophile is, you know, obviously the opposite of a xenophobe. So a xenophile is someone who is a lover of foreign things. So if you like sushi or if you um, love belly dancing or if you're into cricket or like things that are that have originated in other places, uh, but you love that shit and you want it to come here. Anime. And you want it, yeah, anime. Yeah. You want it and you, you, like come here, do it. It's awesome. And yet, so you have this philia for the cultural touchstones from other places and people from other places who can bring that those cultural stu- touchstones to your own country. And also, like, if you want to go travel, too. That's the other side of it. But so then the xenophilic, the person who wants these things, but is also a restrictionist when it comes to immigration, who has a in an interest in a common sense type of immigration policy that doesn't just say, open all the borders and then what exactly right like because of course like if you were to ever imagine a country having a hundred percent open border policy it would just be an economic nightmare (laughs) you can't even imagine how that would work you even see that happening in in europe the 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 bigger issue is even that the people who are coming end up impoverished perhaps not to the level they were in their country they're coming from but then they become but bitter because now they're seeing all these people living these what they would consider lavish lifestyles. Yeah, and because that's what's in the movies yeah, and the TV shows, and then they're still watching it happen around them now that they're in this new country. Yeah, and there's so many of them that it's harder to integrate. It's like you you can't integrate large populations quickly. Yeah, like there has to be a steady flow. And I mean, I think Canada is a great example of this. I think we have one of some of the greatest integra- integration policies in the world. Uh, and that's because we focus on it. We care about it. It's a very important value for Canadians that when you come, we want you to find a job. We want you to have a house. We want you to be contributing to society. And so we make that a huge priority as a country. And, and interestingly enough, Canada is one of the only countries in the world that conservative or liberal parties both have high immigration levels. And that's for a lot of reasons. But I think integration, systematic and focused integration is so important in these things because you don't want a population coming to your country and not being able to find a job. And mm-hmm. suddenly, I mean, there's nothing as harder, I think, on the human psyche than poverty. Yeah. like yeah, Well, it, it's one of the things for sure. Like, it's going to drive you. Maybe it, disease. Well, disease. Or like sickness. Or, 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 or trauma. Yeah. But 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 consistently, and like it just I think it warps you mm-hmm. in a sense because... You, you start to look at the world and say, oh, I, I can't succeed. 
or or you start to, to think the system's out to get you. And there's all kinds of things that it can do to you. And society, I think, has a responsibility to not produce a situation where poverty poverty is going to increase substantially for no better reason than you just couldn't, you know, be more systematic in welcoming people. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Canada does it relatively well, for sure. It's it is a it's a it's a true Canadian feeling. We're very mildly proud of this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, we don't like to blast it from the rooftops or yeah. anything, but you know, yeah. we kind of smile to ourselves when we yeah. think about it. Uh, and so, like, what is again, though? I think what I like about this term, the xenophilic restrictionist, is that it 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 is something that can philosophically distinguish you from a racist who just says, "Get out of our," you know. If you don't like it here, get out of here type of thing. Not to. Well, whatever. I guess I'll stereotype the South. <laughs> Apologies all around. Uh, whereas when I think about like, okay, well, if you're a xenophile, the goal is still to have immigration. Like the goal is to have people come. It's just, I mean, open borders is crazy, you know, and it's not, there are racists who will say open borders is crazy but you don't have to be a racist to think open borders is a crazy idea there's a venn diagram there right. with an unfortunate overlap <laughs> yeah it is totally but that's why i think it's the burden of distinguish of, of distinction is on what i consider to be the classic liberal to say hey no we want things from around the world we want cosmopolitanism we want pluralism but we don't want uh, th- like that's just not going to be able to those very things we want are going to be in tension with so many things if we don't do this in a common sense kind of way and so for me personally what I I, I think I have a a good grasp on what immigration should be because uh, I have aspects of my thoughts on immigration that piss everybody off <laughs> so if you if you have a theory that makes everybody in the political both sides of the clause are angry. You're probably kind of close to a good idea. <laughs> so I'm 100% pro. Either that or you're just mad. <laughs> True. Yeah. I, you, well, I'll leave it up to the fair-mindedness of the listeners. <laughs> but I, I feel I mean like... you particularly, but if you have it, don't, don't think your ideas are good necessarily just because everyone hates them. <laughs> well, no. I mean, I'm just very... My tongue is very firmly lodged in my cheek. <laughs> yes. Uh, but I do think that... So like I'm 100% pro-immigration in principle and conceptually like there are just so many vicissitudes of luck depending on birth right like i just happened to be born in canada and some people just happened to be born in like places right now like venezuela or you know like really places where things are terrible and there's no accounting for that in any cosmic sense right it's just the happenstance of existence and so you have to take into account things like like just cosmic luck and you have to take into account things like who because of that like who am i to say if someone wants to come here and have a better life because canada can provide that to them in a way that maybe a country like somalia can't like that seems to me to be the right thing to do to figure out ways to help people come to canada have a better life and so that is you know that makes all the conservatives (laughs) angry (laughs) and then I also think that if you're going to have, you need to have a, a, a at least an acknowledgement, a, a, like a, a firmly stated, firmly meant, if not 
in your face and for enforced acknowledgement of the values that even make things like why Canada is even a country you'd want to come to in the first place, which ignore, of course, things like freedom of speech and rule um, of law, rule of law, freedom of peoples to associate with whoever they want freedom to. Freedom of religion. Yeah, freedom of religion, freedom of no religion, you know, separation of church and state, and, you know, the handful of things of our society that are non-negotiable. Patents. <laughs> Copyright. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. I mean, like, Those are that's, big. <laughs> that's obviously a huge intellectual property. Yeah. It's obviously a huge problem, especially with China <laughs> and a lot of the Chinese <laughs> companies and stuff like that. And so one of the things that I've noticed that have made my more leftist friends queasy and not totally sure is stating those values and adhering to them in the face of people from other places. So the idea of tolerating thing, people and ideas, obviously tolerating people, but tolerating ideas that are totally impossibly incongruent with the underlying principles that even make Canada a country worth coming to in the first place. And so 100% pro-immigration, make sure you know what the values of your society are and stick to them because that's sticking to those values are actually the diamond in the rough that makes people want to come here in the first place is what I would say. <laughs> yes, agreed. <laughs> so next major scene is there's a massive argument at the dinner table and this uh, character named Murray, who is one of the teachers at the high school and he's the one who brought the My Mind Comp paper of Danny to the attention of Sweeney. Later in the timeline. Later in the timeline, earlier in the movie, but he went on a few dates with Derek and Danny's mom after their dad passed away. And so they're having a conversation around the dinner table after the Rodney King uh, beating by the LAPD. And um, this is, again, where you just see more twisted logic from Derek about why the police were so justified in what they were doing to him. And they, you know, he's like, I mean, when Murray makes the common sense observation of like, or maybe it was his mom where it's like common sense observation of, well, why are there three or four police just beating the shit out of this guy, <laughs> you know, and they caught it on camera. Like, is that what you want the police to do? And, you know, again, this is just another <laughs> obviously great argument that they blow, that Derek blows right past. And well, then he's like, <laughs> you know, they have a hard job and, you know, we need to just trust them in society. And then, and then Danny says, I'm like, wait, now we like the law. Now we obey the law. And he's like, well, no, I have no respect for the law, but I have respect for police officers. And it's just, it's that <laughs> twisted, twisted logic. Yeah. You it's like, get yourself wait, into what? an ideology. Classic. Right? Uh, yeah. I mean, what a great example of doublethink <laughs> in the uh, Orwellian <laughs> yes. sense. Hey? Exactly. How, you know, uh, knowledge is ignorance. Uh, freedom is slavery kind of yeah. thing. Like how you can have, I mean, hu humans are obviously incredibly capable of having two conflicting thoughts. It's not often you see them in such rapid succession, though. No, <laughs> like no. you don't usually see it come out <laughs> in the very next sentence. Usually, usually you see it would, like maybe months later. Feel or slightly, slightly humiliating for the individual <laughs> expressing those views. Well, that way. not if you have the defense mechanism of uh, chosen ignorance. Yes, <laughs> yes, true, true. <laughs> Which Derek is quite prolific in. I mean, yeah, he's, he's exemplifying <laughs> um, it quite well. But there was a really interesting thing that he said. Because his mom, yeah, his mom, I can't remember exactly the point she made, but she made a good point, like, against him, a good point. And she was referencing something like a fact, right? And very derisively and condescendingly, he says, and you're an authority, Ma? He's, um... It's I like just a reverse a argument from authority. Yeah, he uses shame and belittling to someone instead of addressing their argument. And, again, like, that's super indicative of a purist worldview and ideology, but I have 
seen that not just in neo-Nazis, <laughs> right? Like this is yeah. not a phenomenon I've only, where the retort to a hard but fair point is not to take on the point, it's to shame and belittle the person because you have some sort of emotional advantage on them, let's say, right? Like you could see it, I mean, it's portrayed well in stories of like a kid making a good point to an adult who's abusive to them and they just shut them down kind of thing. Like Huck's dad, like you said, is a perfect example of that. Whereas, I think I've talked about this before, but to me, one of the the, the cornerstone bedrock forms of intellectual integrity is taking on every point not just the ones you think you have a better chance of beating. Well, and always taking on the point instead of the person, unless the person is obviously... It, acting in bad faith. Acting in bad... Or, or, yeah, I mean, I think there is a time when you have to belittle a person. In, like, shame and humiliation can be some of the most effective tools of... If, if you're in front of an audience, let's say, and you're in the middle of, a, of an argument there are times when you should make a person look ridiculous in order to further your point. Uh, yeah, okay. But I, I but, think that's true. That is true if you've already addressed the actual point. No, that, what I was about to say is right, okay. you should never do that first. Uh, yeah. Right? So, so you should always argue in good faith until you realize that your opponent perhaps is not arguing in good faith or that you're or that let's say that the audience is so entrenched in a, in a specific position that the only way to shock them into actually listening to the arguments is to make them question because people in general love to make arguments from authority I was thinking about this when I was watching this movie so much of this thinking is just ingrained repetition there's that moment where Seth is Seth is the b- big fat best friend or well friend I guess of of Derek's and there's this moment where he's videotaping Danny and he says why do you feel that way right like why do you hate these other races these other people and he goes into this fairly articulate rationale completely bonkers rationale for why he doesn't like these people and you know that he's just quoting Cameron Alexander, right? This is basically all of these ideas are coming from the same source. And we see it with Derek, too. Why is he the leader? Did he come up with these ideas? Well, we don't know. We see that he's easily swayed by his father at the dinner table, by Sweeney, not by Sweeney as his teacher before he's a principal, then by Sweeney later. This is not a man who's built his ideas himself. This is a man who is repeating the ideas of others. So again, like psychologists could, this is psychology 101, but he's you know projecting his own insecurities then where he's berating his mom for not being an authority because deep down he knows he's not either. Yes. Right? He's yes. reiterating very articulately the talking points of whatever, I'm not even going to call them philosophers, whatever the kind of intellectual I like to call them I like to call them merchants of rage sure yeah but the the intellectual again I don't even like to use that word because it's too it's too much grandeur for what's actually going on the people who are the architects of the pseudo philosophical arguments for the neo-nazism that Derek is spouting off but it, it, it is a good kind of tell I guess for a poker term there when someone 
goes to belittling instead of addressing a point or, you know, condescending or teasing or bullying the person who made the point as opposed to one of the beautiful, one of the most beautiful things about ideas, which to me, ideas are one of the most beautiful things. One of the most beautiful things about them is that they actually don't need bullying. Right. (laughs) Right. uh, They, uh, ideas well-constructed, well-placed and well-put are uh, very able to stand on their own feet and seize their own day and don't need any muscle or any extra teasing or belittling or anything like that. They're capable of paving their own way kind of thing. And so when you see that, when you see evading, equivocating, teasing, bullying... It's not for sure a sign, but it could be a sign of maybe this person's ideas are not well founded, <laughs> to say the least. Who was it? Who was it who said few things are more powerful than an idea whose time has come? I, I can't remember who said it, but I, I love that that quote yeah. because because sometimes an idea's time hasn't come yet, and it's not gonna. That's the one thing I guess I would challenge what you just said on is ideas are beautiful. I completely agree, but. They can easily be manipulated and twisted to create an ideology. Like, there's no doubt that some of the things that are being said by Derek are just plain old facts, right? But the problem is rat poison is 99% good food, but it still kills the rat. Yeah. Right? You can't allow that toxic idea of superiority or that toxic idea of us and them into an ideology, any ideology, I would argue, because as soon as you do, that's when you dehumanize the other. Sure. Okay. Well, let's use the actual example that they were talking about then with the Rodney King stuff, where the cops were beating Rodney King and how a lot of what Derek was saying is that what if he he was speeding, he was high as a kite, what if he hits a kid? What if he hits Danny? Like he uses Danny, like you're singing a different tune then. And the thing that what I would say is that even though those like those facts might be true, like that might actually color differently color the way people see the Rodney King scenario. But what I would say is that the idea that even if that was true, even if Rodney King did all of the terrible things that could he could have done, like he, let's say he hit a bunch of kids that still doesn't justify the cops beating the shit out of him. No, no. Right? Uh, more what I was saying is ideas. You, you said it's, ideas can stand on their own. Yeah. And I'm like, well, sometimes they don't. Right? Well, I I think they do if there is an arena for them to be challenged and debated until their exhaustion. So if I was in this scene with Derek, I'd say like, look, you could, I'll grant you every single point of your argument and the cops were still wrong. <laughs> right. Because at a more, at a diff, at a higher level, you don't want a police force that beats the shit out of criminals on the street <laughs> for yeah. no, for no, no. reason. Well, yeah. for certainly for racist reasons, you don't want that, but any reason, right? Like the whole point of the rule of law is that it's, uh, what's that? Is, Peterson has a great term: minimum nece- necessary force. Yeah, right. And so that the idea of minimum necessary force to due process, to conviction, to jail time is the 
is a, is a is a superior idea to any sort of street justice kind of thing yeah. that the cops yeah. could do, right? No, no, I I agree. Um, and so I, I'm just saying that sometimes. So, so I agree that's a superior idea. But let's take um, how these things operate in a, a totalitarian regime, right? It's no longer. Uh, the the guiding idea or principle is no longer minimum use of force. It's achieving order so that the rule of the of the tyrant can continue. Okay, well maybe I just made a slight faux pas in the way I defined ideas from off the start. But I I mean the ideas that promote what seem to be better ways of living with ourselves and with each other. Yes. And I think those are the ones that can stand on their own, if allowed to. If allowed to breathe even a little air, superior ideas uh, for living <laughs> come out. And, because... and they need to be fought for, right? Yes. this goes back to your idea of the hard-headed, soft-hearted yeah. people. Like the hard-headed, soft-hearted people have to be promoting these ideas of, of charity and human humanism. Or you do just end up with the wolves, you know, yeah, shepherding I mean, the flock. <laughs> one of the hard things about being the quadrant of hard-minded and soft-hearted is that you get grief from all three other quadrants for all the different, so many different reasons, right? <laughs> yeah, true, true. But, you know... <laughs> Nobody likes a whiner. <laughs> but I just think it's interesting how Derek betrays his psychological, maybe even a complex, or, I mean, he couldn't, he would never think about it like that, but the way his worldview, the moment his mom makes a good point, he doesn't address it. He just teases her. or just, not dismisses he just, it, yeah. Yeah, he's just like, what are you, authority mom? So then, uh, just a quick, so when he gets arrested, he gets arrested because he, and convicted of manslaughter of these two, or maybe it's it's murder, but I don't think it's I can't remember. No, if it's manslaughter. They, so he gets convicted of manslaughter. He would have been in jail for life if if Danny, Danny had testified against. Yeah, because him. Danny, and that's one of the big revelations of the movie. And he, it's the extended part of the beginning scene because at the beginning scene you see Danny sh- or you see Derek shoot one of the guys on his stoop, and then the other guy at the car who's running away he shoots him, and then he walks up to him. And then it goes to the movie, and then about halfway through the movie, you see the continuation of that scene where the curb stomping happens. You don't actually see it close up. You see it from a distance, and it's... It's gross. It, it yeah. is gross. It's, it's a hard scene to watch. In a, yeah, because in a sense. this is how Derek kills the second guy, is curb stomping Which him. is his murder. Yeah, and, and, and you know, Danny witnessed the whole thing and didn't testify, which is why Derek got three years instead of life. And so when he's in jail, he has to, like, he's got this massive swastika on his chest. He's so he has to make friends. So he tries to make friends with all of the other neo-Nazis, right? He says he puts up a flag. He takes his shirt off. He gets, so people can see his swastika. And and what's so crazy is that, like, there's a really fucked up but sensical incentive going on here. Especially in a prison, it seems like you need your tribe or you'll die. Well, right? I also love the scene where it's Lamont is uh, is talking to him while they're folding laundry. Lamont is the is the black friend that eventually saves his life, I guess. But the the scene I love is he looks at him and he says, "In here, we're the majority. Like you, yeah. you you're the oppressed minority. You need your people to protect you." And uh, I think it it just goes so deep into sociology, right? Yeah. This idea of tribe, this idea of belonging, this idea of being protected by your tribe from the other. I mean, 
the Hobbesian, you know, state of nature where life is brutish and short, right? Yeah, like that's kind of what a maximum security prison would be like, I imagine, where if Derek doesn't align himself with the other white supremacists in the group, he's just going to get killed by somebody sometime. Like he's just easy pickings for everybody. Well, I imagine the people outside of the prison, I mean, I think we've all seen enough prison shows or movies to know like that usually they send hits in from the outside and or from the inside. I'm sure there's people outside that want revenge on Derek for what he did. Yeah, definitely. It's usually how these things work. Yeah. And it just like, you know, I mean, this is all of this stuff is horribleness in a major key, but it made me think of horribleness in a minor key is this is a kind of an ugly reflection of what identity politics could be. If everybody is some sort of immutable identity, their skin color, their gender, et cetera, and you just keep pushing people that way, and it's not, for lack of a better term, it's not okay to be anything except your identity, and eventually that you're just going to make factions who are violent to each other. Now, are we seeing this in our day and age? I'll leave that up to you to decide. But I think one of my major critiques of current left-wingism, I guess, is the incessant emphasis on identity politics because you just it adds fuel to the fire of things like white supremacy. <laughs> Yeah, like that's. I I think that's what they just don't get. Like, there's a cause and effect. You you keep telling everyone that they belong to this group and that they're part of this group, and then you keep telling them that they're evil, and you keep saying, "Not only are you part of this group, this is a shady group to be a part of. Like, you're awful. You're an oppressor." And truth be told, I am way more actually scared of right wing nutbags. Well, (laughs) I am am absolutely more scared because (laughs) these are the ones with the guns and the more cleansing ideologies. And it's not a good strategy. No, it's not a good strategy to win elections. And I would say it's not an ethical strategy because it's not, again, it's not an individualistic view of the world. I was just in Serbia and I can, I think I can speak to this in a, in a very visceral level. It doesn't have to be about skin color. Religion can be huge, right? Forgive me, my Croat and Bosnian friends for saying this, but it's biologically true. Everyone in Serbia is from the same genetic pool, basically. Well, I mean, everyone well, in the world well, is. Well, yes, but like... <laughs> more recent, you <laughs> More mean. recently from the <laughs> yeah. same genetic pool. And yet the level of hatred that they had for each other too was so severe... That they just started, they started a war over it, and and there was all kinds of atrocities committed by all sides, and and everyone now admits, well, not everyone, but most people now admit that. But sitting in Serbia and listening to them talk about each other and what happened, you're blown away by this idea, and that's identity politics. That's i that's being consumed by your small group and saying my small group is better than your small group and we're talking about catholics versus orthodox christians that is the narcissism of petty difference that i've ever seen yeah (laughs) of course well and again the historical irony is that identity politics is often something peddled by what are called liberals these days and yet it was what i you know the og liberals who were you know david hume Adam humanist, Smith, humanist, uh, yeah. John Stuart Mill, Harriet Taylor, who were like, no, 
we want to get away from these kind of identity markers so that people can flourish in their own skin. Well, that was like kind of the enlightenment to some degree. Of course. Like. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, to, that's the heart of the enlightenment. And so, and then I would again say the enlightenment was perpetrated by people who were liberals. So yes. again, there's the yeah. historical irony for you. I don't even like to call them liberals. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, so then the next little big thing is how Derek is disillusioned with his new neo-nazi friends because one of the guys is doing drug deals with one of the mexican guys and derek's all like why are you doing this and it was uh, kind of like it's the moment he discovers the actual impossibility of living a pure life if you have a pure ideology ideology yeah. right and i just recently read this book that i could not recommend enough to everyone out there called a thousand small sanities uh the moral adventure of liberalism by this guy named Adam Gopnik, who is a great writer, and it's uh, he wanted to call it the Rhinoceros Manifesto <laughs> because <laughs> he was comparing he's comparing the liberal view versus the utopian view, and the utopian view is he calls the unicorn view because it's got a beautiful gold mane, a shiny tail, beautiful fur coat. Uh, a wonderful golden horn and is fake and not real. I was about to say, <laughs> As and doesn't exist. And doesn't exist. <laughs> Whereas the rhinoceros is fat, gangly, cumbersome, uh, ugly, ugly, rough, and is totally real and exists. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I so like he that. says the liberal is actually the one who prefers the rhinoceros to the unicorn because it, for all of its flaws, it's actually a real thing. <laughs> and anyway, one of the things he talks about is how purity of living is a fool's errand getting comfortable with the push and pull of your own feelings about things is actually one of the starts psychologically for the liberal mindset is the ability to have a little bit of perspective on your own dissonances and your own contradictions and seeing it in other people which is of course this little the little ability and like again very minor stuff again that's what it's called it's not called 10 small sanities or five small sanities, a thousand small sanities, right? All of the little ability to pay attention to the tiny little things that are pushing you and pulling you in different directions and yet still making good decisions along the way is just not in Derek's repertoire. No. <laughs> right? Like no. until every piece of evidence fits the pre-existing order, you haven't reached goodness. So his unicorn is this racial purity that he's looking for like the neo-nazis aren't neo-nazi enough for him yes like because in jail because they're not being perfect neo-nazis yeah <laughs> and they start teasing him and then while this is happening he he the other major character is lamont who you referenced earlier who's his friend in the laundry room derek gets assigned to the laundry and what i like is that what it is that he starts to bond with lamont with is the silliness of just being friends right there's a great scene where well the first one like they're talking about human stuff that transcend race right so the first one is lamont angry sex angry sex yeah talking (laughs) about how do you have a girlfriend outside oh Oh, and he's like i just miss the smell of women (laughs) yeah and that angry sex (laughs) (laughs) it's just hilarious viscerally describing yeah yeah lamont uh role plays the woman uh (laughs) during what appears to be some high level coitus (laughs) and of course this brings a smile to derek's face because i'm sure it's also bringing a smile to yours (laughs) as you're imagining it and then the other thing that bonds them to uh is basketball because there's a scene early where they're playing basketball and they have a very 
uh, not an argument, a just like a a heated, (laughs) friendly debate about who's better, who's a better dynasty, the Celtics or the Lakers, right? And in the way that if any of you are into sports or know people who are into sports, the kind of level of passion that a sports fan can have when arguing for their team against another team, it's like, you know, it's low level disagreement, but it's the more overarching point is that they both love basketball. So, right. So right away, well, not right away, but Derek is getting an affinity for this Lamont guy who's black because of their shared human connections, most explicitly through the sex part and the basketball part. Isn't that a movie? No, love and basketball. (laughs) There's a, I did not know there was a movie called love and basketball. And so it's only after he has this bond with Lamont that he's able to see through his worldview. Like, uh, even though ostensibly we're supposed to think it's Lamont protecting him from the other black guys in the jail, that is why Derek changed his mind. I actually think it's the relationship he develops with Lamont of why he changes his mind about his oh, feelings. Yes. No, I think I think you're completely Do you know right. what I mean? Yeah. Well, I like, mean... We're, like, so Lamont is in jail for six years for allegedly throwing a TV at the cop. And breaking his foot. And Assault. breaking his foot. Yeah. Where he says he just dropped it. And whereas Derek's like, you'd never get Derek, six years for dropping Derek, a TV. Derek's in jail for three years for killing two people. Like, yes. this is a very... Uh, <laughs> this is this is not justice no by any means but like what's cool about this movie too though is that if lamont had told derek about why he was in jail before because derek asked before they bonded and lamont didn't tell him no 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 lamont asked derek and derek didn't tell lamont right but But, lamont already knew because that that news had already got around sure but there wasn't there was no reciprocity like there wasn't a relationship built yet so it wasn't something derek it, well, okay, but it didn't seem like Derek was interested in why Lamont was in jail. And so, because he wasn't interested, it also doesn't seem like if he had heard Lamont's story off the bat, he would have believed him, right? He'd have been like, no, you fucking threw that TV at that cop. Obviously, you deserved all the time you got, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas, because now he's bonded a bit with Lamont, and he hears him, and he has a kind of a trust built with Lamont, and he hears that Lamont was, it was alleged he threw the TV, but he's like, no, man, I dropped it. I just dropped it. And, but, he, and he believes Lamont in that moment. And yeah. I think that's like a... It's a hearts and minds moment. Yeah, that's right? a moment. That's a that's a TSN turning point moment right there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like that. You do. You see it in Derek's eyes. Like he's like, wait, what? You accidentally dropped a TV on a cop and you got six years for that? That's crazy. How did that happen kind of thing? Exactly. Right? Suddenly he sees, oh, maybe injustice is happening on the other side. And while all of this is happening the neo-nazis in the jail have felt slighted by derek like he's just not well he's literally <laughs> not hanging out with them because they're yeah. not ideologically pure so there enough. is um and he's he's disrespecting them in in a movie full of unsettling scenes <laughs> probably the most unsettling is the prison rape scene where the neo-nazis rape derek in the shower and again it's hard to find the words with enough gravity or grandeur to them but it made me think of um the grand falloon ah, from the very beginning yes. of kurt vonnegut where the grand falloon is derek's neo-nazi friends like he goes to jail he sees all these white guys and they have swastika tattoos as well so they must be his tribe and they're the ones who fuck him <laughs> if you'll pardon <laughs> the joke right the it's it's the people that he cast his lot with that actually are the only are the ones who do the most damage to him 
But it turns out Lamont is his Karas. Yeah. Right? yeah. So, yeah, the, the Grand Floon or the other neo-Nazis, the Karas is this black guy in jail who he talks about sex and basketball with. And it's just, like, <laughs> it's so perfect yeah. in its yeah. role reversal, right? And, of course, it's just supposed to imitate all the times where it's like an unsung hero that makes your day better and the thing that you over-rely on because you think it should be your thing that lets you down. Yeah, and like going into that a little deeper, I think on a on a personal level, if you find yourself hating another group of people, probably and hopefully you haven't reached well, yeah, really hopefully you haven't reached Derek's point. But if you want to be a thoughtful person, I like to believe the people listening to this want to be thoughtful people. And I think that's what you and I are trying to become or be constantly striving towards. Go and find someone in that group of people that you hate and get to know them. So I was recently at a, at a, giving a talk at a conference on uh, campaigning because that's what I do for work. And there were a lot of liberals in the room, and I, I happened to be on the other side of the spectrum in my work. And um, I joked. I said, maybe you should all go out there because they were asking, how do we stop the hate? How do we stop the tribalism? How do we, how do we go against this bifurcation of society and i said well maybe you guys all need to go out and befriend a conservative and god forbid a climate denier (laughs) god forbid that like not to say okay come on david some people are completely untakeable (laughs) and that's what i mean and actually this is one of my favorite things about this movie is how it does humanize these despicable hateful people and makes us be like oh they're people too and there's that great story uh, i can't remember any of the names in it but where the uh, ku klux klan member befriends a black pastor and the black pastor keeps inviting him over to his house and eventually he just leaves the ku klux klan because he's like well everything they're saying is wrong and that's a real life example of what we're seeing in american history x and then on a really personal level there was a time in my life where I was beginning to buy into rhetoric about Muslims and thinking that that it was us against them to some degree. And I was finding, you know, I was finding myself straying towards an ideology that might have, have put me in opposition to them, let's say. And what did I do? Well, I befriended this Muslim guy that I knew, and, and we had breakfast every week for months. And I got to know him. He's become one of my dearest friends. And suddenly, it was very hard to feel uh, that thing that had been building in me. Suddenly, it dissipated. And I, I really believe that if we could intentionally go, I mean, the old adage from Scripture, love your enemies, right? I think there's a lot of wisdom there. If you get to know your enemies, we see this in American History X. You can see that in my own life. If you get to know your enemies or who you perceive to be your enemies, the them in your life, you might find out they're people too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I mean, that's what Lamont does. Because, again, ostensibly, Derek is his enemy. Exactly. Exactly. Lamont offers the olive branch from the beginning when he's talking with Derek, and that's what helps Derek. But I also like Derek, the rape scene where Derek gets raped it is the scene 
it's the first time, at least we see in the movie, where Derek has massive repercussions to his behavior. Um, I mean, obviously, well, going to jail. Prison, yeah. Going to jail is, but repercussions that I would say reach the level of horror. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, it's yeah. not like going to jail is obviously ter- not great at all, but I don't think it's as bad as being raped. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> it made me think a little bit about like how after his rape, he has a breakdown. Sweeney comes to visit him. Sweeney's the guy that's comforting him. And it's not, it's kind of a, in a weird way, it's the first time Derek has had a personal horrible consequence for his ideology, you know? And it made me wonder a bit of like things like, man, when you really, when the rubber hits the road of human life for terrible ideas, <laughs> yeah, you know, and like how, I don't know, like just the experiential aspect of what he's talking about that chicken coming to roost as it were. I mean, obviously no one deserves to be raped, but Derek put himself in a position where that was a really live option to happen to him. And it did. And as like, that was just so horrible to him. And I don't know. It just made me think a bit about how like those kind of, again, in a very minor sense, like this is why I, I get, okay, here's what I mean. This is why every single avenue of problem solving needs to be exhausted before we resort to violence of any kind because once you open that door uh what's that expression um uh you unleash the hounds of war uh the hounds unleashed are not quick to be tied up again no and the horrors and the atrocities that can happen if you pursue (laughs) I mean, obviously, with the supermarket scene for Derek and his cronies, violence is, if not the first option, the second or the third. And I think that this is just kind of down the line what happens if you are that cavalier. Well, about live violence. by the sword, die by the sword, right? Right, <laughs> yeah. And I mean, not to be unsympathetic to Derek. No. But it's horrors are real. And, and prior to this point, Derek has only lived in the abstract of his ideas. And this is one consequence of them. And it's pretty altering for him, <laughs> you know? And so then when he comes out, like to me, that's the first moment of his repentance is that experiencing yes. horror, right? Yes. I mean, and it's, I've read a little bit about like one of the reasons of the enlightenment is that it happened in the century after basically a hundred years of religious wars and how <laughs> the people of Europe were just exhausted by the killing, I think was yes. one, like, that might not be exactly Locke's version, but it's a paraphrase because Locke's great treaty was written in 1690 yeah, near well, the close of the century of <laughs> religious slaughter and slaughter and slaughter and slaughter. Well, basically Luther <laughs> came along and, it, and then it was just death. For, yeah. <laughs> yeah. For a long time. Exactly. Right. And so like that exhaustion of the horrors, I think is again, Derek's first view and one of the beautiful things about being a person is that we can learn from other people's mistakes yes no, we don't have to commit <laughs> and all we don't we don't mistakes, have to, yeah. we can pay attention to the horrors other people have done so as to not have them uh, recur again in our generation <laughs> and then the rest of the movie he's either instructing Danny about why he left or rebelling against the white supremacists and it's like he has this strong integrity. Like he punches Cameron Alexander in the face at the party. And it just made me think the intensity and the gumption you need to rebel against groupthink 
you know, the group think of the white supremacists that like Derek comes out of prison. He's a hero. Everybody wants him to be what he was. And he's not that anymore because of the changes that he's had through his relationship with Lamont and the rape. And he, I thought a little bit almost naively or like he just seemed like he wasn't quite sure what he was getting himself into. Yeah, I don't think he really thought it through very well. <laughs> yeah, at he all. like steals like, a gun from yeah. Seth because, and gets Danny out of there. But it's like, it did, like, it wasn't the smart, to me, it wasn't the best plan <laughs> anyone could have in that situation, but it was pretty cool how he, like, it showed how you need a, some level of integrity to stand up to groupthink. You know, and, and, you know, I think you need a lot of integrity. Like, how hard would it be for anyone to walk into a place where they're basically celebrated as a god and like a hero and say, nope, don't want this anymore? Yeah. And I so don't want it that I am in the next 10 minutes willing to put my life on the line, put my life on the line, and then pull a gun on everyone here (laughs) to get out of here alive. Well, he didn't pull the gun. He stole Well, he, he, yeah, but he stole the gun and then pointed at everyone to, to get out of there safely, right? And at the end, he wants to help Sweeney, even though he knows it's a huge risk because the white guys want to beat up Derek now because of all his fighting. And, you know, uh, one of the last things he says, well, not one of the last things, like he says this to Danny when he's telling about his prison time. I need you to understand because I love you and you're my best friend. And I was like, man, yeah, you need that love part. Yeah. Right. Like that's how he connects to Danny. That's how he makes Danny understand why he's not a neo-Nazi anymore. He doesn't say, hey, I got all the good arguments now for not being a neo-Nazi. He says, I love you and i need you to understand you need that you need that humanized talks to that heart and you know what like this is obviously you couldn't really imagine a different context i guess but when i'm at work and a kid's having a bad day or having a hard time or feeling like they don't belong like they're like nobody likes me i i always like one of if not the first thing i always say is like i get down the level say you know what i can't help how you're feeling and what you're feeling is real, but I just want you to know that I am very happy that you are here and your presence matters to me. And so that at least is a starting spot. And that's kind of the starting spot Derek uses. Yeah. And I think that's a good starting spot. And so the next little uh, bit we want to talk about Danny, his younger brother, Edward Furlong's character. And so my first impression, well, not my first impression, because the first impression is when he's talking about Mein Kampf and <laughs> the opening scene, etc. Uh, but he's got, Rhodey's got a tough outer shell. So in the one of the early scenes, he's in the bathroom and one of the kids is getting beat up by these three bullies. And the, the kid who's getting beat up is white and the three bullies are black. And uh, Danny's in one of the stalls and he walks out and he blows smoke in the black, in the bully's face, right? And it just feels like what you get about Danny's is he's like, he's this nice, sweet kid that are, he's flirting with things that are both out of his depth. Like he actually isn't capable of handling the shit that comes his way. And it also doesn't really seem like he has a massive desire to. The thing that's interesting about Danny is that most of the hate rhetoric that comes out of his mouth is forced by the other people around him. It's not until Seth insists that Danny explain his reasons reasons why he hates other people that he does it and he's very articulate when he does but it's in a weird way like he's teetering on the edge like it just racism doesn't seem to be a motivating factor for danny internally as much as it is for all the other white supremacists in this movie and yet because he's in the family that he's in and he has the brother that he has and he's in the environment he does it's like he's got nowhere else to turn to. So there's like a really sad 
it's like almost like the it's the tragedy of determinism <laughs> almost yeah. you know where he doesn't even have a choice but to be anything else that's what i noticed about danny from the start so then the scene where Derek is pontificating about rodney king etc et there's a number of great shots so cinematography really smart shots of danny looking and listening and so my thought on this is um the young eyes and young ears are everywhere and if you're a mentor to someone it's part of your responsibility to tell the truth and be fair and Derek obviously knows everyone at the table or is listening and he has to know danny's there too and he just doesn't feel the compunction to be fair or to be truthful about everything. He's, well, it's all filtered, again, through his ideology. But I guess it kind of reveals how even passively Derek is indoctrinating his brother into the way he thinks, because obviously Danny looks up to Derek. And especially, I'm aware of this, working with young people all the time, is that everything you do and say, they can hear and see, you know? And I think when that's the case, there is a responsibility on your shoulders to be truthful and fair. And I mean, again, I'm not a Puritan. I don't think children should be shielded from all the things that they have traditionally been shielded from. But I do think circumspection is important when yeah. you're talking around kids. And that just doesn't happen to Danny. So you're seeing like all of the ways he's set up for failure. <laughs> Well, and it's almost as if, I, th- I agree with what you said, it doesn't seem like it is a driving force for him, and yet it's kind of his way of getting approval from the people he cares about most in life, whether that be his brother or this Cameron Alexander guy. Like, the people he truly re- looks up to and respects are all in this sphere, so like, whose idea was it from the right the mind comp thing? It looks like it was pretty, uh, probably Cameron Alexander. Yeah, and... You know, like, throughout the movie, when race and ideology aren't, it's not very often in this movie where they're not the focal point of any given scene, when they're not, you know, he's taking care of his little sister. He's being such a great brother and son. Like, his mom has an illness. I don't know. It's like... It seems seems like it's lung cancer. Yeah. Like, his mom smokes like a chimney, so it seems like she's has a terminal illness. And so he's kind of taking care of both his little sister and his mom and he's such a doting caregiver in both instances. And so you're like, well, there is obviously some deep goodness here with Danny that he wants to help the people he's close with. And presumably he could extend that on to other people too. And then caught back in that web, you know, which is why Danny is the tragic character yes. <laughs> in this movie. If oh, we're going to go with sure. storytelling archetypes, he's the tragic character because he's only the, from good, a narrative, only the good die young. Right? Yeah, I mean, from a narrative point of view, he's the one who least deserves what he gets kind of thing. And then, again, it would have been, like we mentioned earlier, if Danny had testified against Derek because he'd witnessed the, the curb-stomping murder, if he had testified, it would have been life. And I just like, man, what a unbelievably unfair position to put another person in. <laughs> again, oh. like, again, underselling yeah. every meaning of the word. But part of the massive, tra- like, the tragedy of hateful worldviews is almost uncountable, but one of them is just the unbelievably unfair spots you put other people in. Like, how could Derek do that to Danny? How could Derek obviously do that to the people he murdered? Yes. yes. How? But I how mean, could, but supposedly he loves Danny, and yes. yet he puts him in the position where he Having has to, to lie, and not only lie, witness murder. Yeah. And, you know, obviously what Derek did to those two men was horrible, 
and it's not the right penalty, but they were stealing his car. Like they were being, they were in the middle of a criminal activity that theft is not okay either no, <laughs> kind of thing. No. So it's like they did deserve to be arrested and probably put in jail for Grand Theft Auto or something like that. Whereas Danny is in this moment a 14-year-old kid who has done nothing to deserve any penalty at all for anything, and yet he has to lie. On the stand. <laughs> or or at least not testify. Yeah, yeah. But it also goes back to one of the biggest problems with tribalistic ideologies is that loyalty becomes uh, the thing that protects... Like, the group becomes more important than the individual, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. I think we all need to understand that, that we exist in networks and we need one another. But loyalty becomes more important than truth. Loyalty to the ideology yeah. becomes more important than justice. Like, loyalty becomes the ultimate importance. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I think it's Jonathan Haidt on his work on moral psychology where he says, actually, truth as it were, is not what comes easiest to us. So he says humans are actually not natural-born scientists. They're natural-born lawyers. Oh. <laughs> they're very good at, at post-hoc their... <laughs> rationalizing their case yes. as opposed yes. to projecting an experiment for which, truth which book into is the that in by him? Um, I'm not sure, but I think it's The Righteous Mind. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. So anyway, it's like, yeah. And again, I'm, for the first time, well, not again, I'm just telling you this now. <laughs> I'm watching the sopranos for the first time right now oh. i mean i watched drips and drabs episodes of it when it was on tv when i was a teenager but um i've never watched it like beginning to end like you can now with streaming services and i mean this isn't even the show that now does this with the most edge or severity but just how the um like all the business people who will never call the cops if they have a grievance with someone they just call the syndicate, I guess, or the Sopranos or like the other wise guys or, you know, Polly or Silvio, kind of the guys who work for Tony. Uh, like, oh, these guys are giving us grief. Okay, you go deal with this, right? It's like the police are, the security is outsourced. So you pay your tax to the mafia and, then and they protect they'll take you. care of everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just crazy how it's like, it's almost the same system as like the law enforcement yeah, uh, the the legal system, right? Well, I mean, but that... it's but it's all based on who you know, how much you pay, uh, what you're willing to do. Never talking to the cop. Like, there's just all these extra restrictions placed on you. That, but again, and then for a lot of the people in the show, the upside is all the extra money they make that they couldn't make legally kind of <laughs> yeah, because they're being protected by the yeah, mafia. Yeah. yeah. So, any but it's like a real perversion of incentives, and then you know. And it there all is, does come like, down to loyalty for the family, right? Yeah, it's it comes like down to loyalty, loyal to but then it's with things like that. Again, like ideology, like mafia, your trust can break, but it can't bend. So as soon as you have one instance of something untoward or even like a dissonance or a contradiction or like you can't afford the benefit of a doubt. You can't afford innocent till proven guilty because of it's a legal activity. Everything's on the line, right? Plus your reputation, et cetera, right? Yeah. <laughs> like it's just yeah. all of these, like, what I, I guess, and I don't even totally understand how it works, but like perverse incentives yeah, <laughs> are making well, you not search for truth as much as you are searching for 
rationalizing your yeah, own yeah, why you're perpetuity. Doing what you're doing. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And then he also has a really interesting line that I loved. The one of the one of the it's not like the most in your face line of the movie, but one of the ones that really stuck with me because of how like I mean, this isn't a line that hits home for me, but it can hit home for a lot of people where he said, uh, Danny says in his, he's voiceovering part of his American History X papers, it's hard to look back and be honest about the people you love. And so there's a scene later in the movie after we've seen, like even after the jail scene, we see Danny and Derek's dad before his death at the dinner table talking about how you need to watch out for the book Sweeney's given you because I don't know, he's got a diatribe about affirmative action and how it actually means that the best man doesn't get the jobs. And like, is that fair when he's in a burning house, if the best man doesn't have his back kind of thing. And again, like there's a twisted logic to it, but it it's not, I don't know. It's just not. No, it's just, it, it, the problem is that it's like any ideology or worldview that simplifies reality, right? It's not so simple yeah. as, better and worse like merit totally believe is a real thing and in a perfectly equal society merit should be the only thing we measure everything by Mm -hmm. and but the problem is that there are biases and ideological beliefs that have allowed us like i just watched a movie recently about um after it was about the civil war and after the civil war and all all of that had happened and the, and the, and slavery had ended. Things went back to to black people being literally being oppressed and uh, lynched, yeah. right? And that happened. And like th- that statement that Derek, I wonder if lynching lynchings even happened more after slavery ended. Probably I don't know. Well, I don't know. Like that'd yeah. be an empirical question. It'd be it'd be really depressing to read the data either way. Yeah, but it's like I think. Well, my guess would be especially in the South, like where a lot of these, where a lot of the uh, super, the people who are racist who are willing to be violent before slavery, it maybe other than an escaped slave or a runaway slave, it would be almost seen to be be stupid, right? Because you'd be, it would be worth your time to go lynch a slave. But now it's like, well, it goes back to what we were talking about, about Huck's dad. Like, yeah, you now it's a psychological thing yeah, they to have, lynch a black person. Yeah, it's like you're lesser than me. You're 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 trying to be better than me. You're the other. And you know, who cares what the government said that you're my equal? I still think that I'm better than you. Yeah, and I like fuck. Like what uh I I just I try so hard to understand mindsets, all mindsets in the human temperament, and there's just some that I can't get my head into to be so full of a prejudice that you'd want to kill someone just for being what they are. Yeah. Is several million bridges too far for me. (laughs) Also just to finish like that idea of how we, I mean, nostalgia, we look with rose colored glasses at our lives and just how we're so, but especially the people we love, like the things we're willing to overlook in them is, and I think to me again, it's more of a um, impetus to, actually deal with things as they rise because a very plausible interpretation of this movie is this is what happens when you let fester without correction a particular way of thinking yep you know yeah just the way that Derek there were so many times and Sweeney tried but just 
like even at home a fair-mindedness about things like affirmative action or even like his mom chiming in or something just something that can give Derek something else to course correct even mildly to throw in there you know and And like I guess like yeah people did try but also part of this movie is is how responses to tragedy can shape you like if, if we're thinking of this as a personal journey as opposed to a, a societal critique, you can react different ways to pain. You can react different ways uh, to suffering. And I, I think, I know we, or we mentioned Jordan Peterson a lot in this, but one of the things that I love that he says is he says, you know, no situation exists that isn't so bad that some fucker like you can't come along and make it worse yes right <laughs> there's no hell so, so deep that you can't find a shovel and get deeper <laughs> yeah, like how awful to to have a family of four lose their father primary breadwinner obviously it was catastrophic for their economic viability and all of this happens and his response to it is more hate right is 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 to take that and turn it outward and i mean one of the things my dad always says is there's kind of two reactions to to suffering or two tendencies there's homicidal and suicidal ways of acting so some people look inward and they beat up themselves and they get angry with themselves and others like kind of and then the others are Derek. yeah and the others are Derek. they spray their hate all over the world it doesn't have to be your dad dying or being shot by someone in a crack house your reaction to daily problems, your reaction to any given moment where you're suddenly confronted by the world, maybe it's being unjust to you, or maybe it's tragedy and there's no rhyme or reason to it. You don't get to choose what happens to you in life, but you get to choose how to respond to it. Mm-hmm. And I think like that's the greatest strength you can have is realizing, oh, I don't have to like sit here and be bitter because someone... like offended me Mm -hmm. i could actually like i wonder why they're in a mood where they feel they need to uh, you know do that to me or like it's stepping out of that default setting of me 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 but well i one of the things that's so hard with for Derek though is that he's getting this stuff when he's still a teenager oh yeah right like he he's it's coming into his mind as his mind is developing and growing right and again i mean i think it's just more uh, onus of responsibility when you have young people to be fair and not prejudicial but I, I mean obviously Derek's dad doesn't think he's being prejudicial he thinks he's being fair again I think that the only not the only the best course correction for this way of being and thinking is an open arena for challenge and debate and I basically um I always do champion the coliseum of the mind the coliseum of ideas needs to always be open and free (laughs) for anyone to go in with their thought because even if you get a hundred bad ideas it's the only way to ensure you'll get the one you need that's a good one to maybe start deflecting some of that things whereas what does Derek's dad say he says be careful with Sweeney. Don't listen to Sweeney, right? Like he just plants doubts in Derek's mind, which isn't, again, giving Sweeney a fair shot, right? He's not saying, hey, je-, well, he, he says something like, you know, just keep this in mind as he's talking, right? But again, he's not talking about the book that Sweeney assigned. He's talking about the fact 
that Sweeney assigned it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So he's not talking about the con. He's not getting into the details, the nitty gritty, to glean out a principle. He's already got his principle. He doesn't need data, evidence, nitty gritty. Thank you very much. But, and I like what Sweeney says uh, in the hospital when he's talking to Derek after he's been raped, and he says. I used to be like you. I used to, I've been, you get the impression that he's been in that place, that he's, well, i.e. prison. You get the impression he's gone through a lot of these things and he's had the hate towards white people that Derek had towards black people. And he's like, and eventually he's like, has any of that made your life better? Right. And any of it. And And Derek's like, no. No, of course. Well, that might be the cognitive realization of the emotional one he had with his horror. Yes. In the shower, right? Yes. Like that that marriages as well with the scenes. And um, the last little bit with Danny, because again, Danny is focal in the plot, but he's not the most interesting character because he's he's making things happen. He's kind of our narrator, in a sense. Yeah. At the very end of the movie, he's killed by the bully, the guy who he blew smoke in at the beginning. And of course, just to add the extra layer of animus needed the bully's black he's white so this black kid kills this white kid in a bathroom in the school they're both like 17 it seems like i remember when i first watched this movie and the ending of this movie i was like oh crap like it just it just hit me so hard because it's like comes right at the moment where danny is rounding the bend to be like he's written this beautiful paper about how his and Derek's ideology was wrong. a mistake. He's had this long talk with Derek, and so he's poised to have a new vista of good living, ethical thinking, like positive contribution now to the world. And he gets killed in his school bathroom, like unceremoniously, obviously, right? Blood spattered all over the urinals kind of thing. And... When I watched it this time, what struck me is that I actually love this choice narratively for this reason, is that I think it, as far as, you know, work of fiction can, I think it more closely underscores or underpins the endless tragedy of existence, even when progress is made. So even though there's progress made in the personal lives of Danny and Derek, that doesn't mean reality has gone. Yeah, And it doesn't mean, like, this is the opposite of a Hollywood ending, right? Yeah. There's, <laughs> and there's, no there's, something, there's something weirdly satisfying about that where things like this will happen even though improvements are made. Improvements socially, legally, and psychologically in a person. Because, again, we don't... <laughs> Utopias are unicorns. <laughs> yep, yep. But going back to a very much earlier point that we made, if we keep up with this idea of identity politics, this is my group, this is my tribe, a lot of shootings are happening in America right now. Yeah. And it's completely disgusting, and it's primarily being carried out by groups of people like of our race and gender. And I think... What people don't understand is that that's not just because of a hateful ideology. It is the hateful ideology that takes them to the point of doing it. But it's also a world in which 
they're constantly being told that that's what they are to begin with. Yeah, I mean, it's tough, I think, because the internet is not reality. But yeah, no, but that's what but I'm it's saying. like it is like they're a being... kind of a weird like journalistic class, Twitter class of people who are insisting on the identity politics way of seeing the world that drives some really probably mentally unstable people. Well, like <laughs> I think these probably kind of these people are like despair. They're, they're outsiders. They're they're obviously mentally a little bit unstable because who who commits acts like this of just pure hate, but. Why is this happening more? And I honestly believe it's it's the tribalism. It's this divisive politics in which we say it's us versus them. It's all a power struggle. There's no unity of purpose. There's, I mean, it's the Marxian idea that everything is a power struggle, right? That all of life, all of society is simply yeast fighting. It's, it's, it's Jack London's um, Seawolf. Right where we're just yeast fighting to become bigger pieces of yeast, and our group has got to be bigger and more powerful than the other groups. Yeah, I mean, and then you see devastating side effects. Yeah, of this because it it is in direct contrast to treating people as individuals. Well, what bothers me the most is we have so much historical evidence that this is how it goes. I was just in Serbia. That was only twenty five years ago. That that was the devastation to at one time one of the larger and more influential countries in Europe, Yugoslavia. Not just that, like you were telling or talking about earlier, the wars that came before the Enlightenment, a century of killing each other because we believed different things about because our identities were Catholic or Protestant. Yeah. Like Well, but you know what's kind of cool though? One of my great Prometheans is Hitchens and he said one of the things that he said that's really stuck with me is that every generation needs to reassert their principles. And so I think, obviously, history is important. But even more important than historical knowledge is people being able to make that reimagined again, like reminded. Even more important than history textbooks existing oh, yes. are people yeah. reading history and reiterating it well, and to the somebody world. going out there and saying hey yeah. we're gonna we're all gonna start killing each other let's stop because every generation <laughs> again needs its own discussion with the world because every generation becomes the group in the prime of their life who are in most in charge of things yeah right yeah. and so that's why every generation needs to wrestle with these things which is maybe frustrating because it's Again, like, why do we have to fight all these battles we've already fought? Well, because it's actually part of the human personality to forget. <laughs> yeah, and it's pretty ingrained in us genetically, some of these yeah. problems. So, I mean, really, look at the rapid progress we have made. But again, I like this thought, just to close this part with Danny, is that I love this thought of, again, the rhino part of the Rhinoceros Manifesto. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Gopnik, is that even though Danny is killed at the end of this movie, it doesn't mean things aren't a little bit better now. I mean, obviously, there's the tragedy, but the improvements are not going to end all of the tragedies, right? And they're going to keep happening. And I liked how the movie acknowledged this by having the ending that it did. Mm -hmm. And then his last, I mean, the very last quote of the movie is an Abraham Lincoln quote, but as you hear after Danny's death and you hear the voiceover and the shore, like the beach, the shore, the end of the movie starting and you hear his voiceover and you, and you say, okay, what have I learned? I learned hate is baggage and life is too short to be pissed off all the time. 
And I was like, man, what a great, because like the, 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 the hate that Derek is showing this whole movie is just pulling him to the bottom of the ocean, you know? And as soon as he's let go of that, he's like, he just seems way happier, you know, and way more alive. And he's a little funnier and he's just got a better personality in general, right? Like he makes little quips and side comments and funny little jokes with Danny. And he's nicer to his mom and his sister. Yeah, yeah. In just ways that he never was before, right? So hate is baggage and life is way too short to be pissed off all the time. Quickly, some other thoughts about other characters. Um, I like there's a great line when Sweeney's talking to Murray about the my mind conf that Danny wrote and he says he learned this psycho babble and he can unlearn it I'm not giving up on this child clearly showing that mentorship need not be racial because <laughs> you know and so I wrote the hard liberal job of finding out the relevant variable for every interaction so to me an easy example of this is like at my job you know, I'm the ethnicity I am, and I work with kids who are all of all sorts of different ethnicities, and yet that's never the relevant variable. The relevant variable is that I'm an adult and they're kids. <laughs> yeah. So I yeah. am in charge, not because I am the ethnicity I am, but because I'm the one who's best capable to keep them safe. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> right? Yeah. In the same way that there are other staff who are other ethnicities than me who the relevant variable is not that, it's that they're adults. So, like, it's age. Age yeah. is the relevant <laughs> variable, right? Yeah, yeah. And this is something Sweeney is noticing and also portraying. It's like, obviously, <laughs> the color of Sweeney's skin is not why he's a good mentor for Danny. It's because he's a hard, he's a hard ass with a great sense of moral purpose. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like, that's why Sweeney is the right guy to be able to be helping Danny. Not for anything else. Right? And I just like, I think... It is part of a liberal-minded person's job to find out the re- relevant variable in any interaction. And it's not racial, always. It, if it is racial, that is racism, right? Like, that's a good way to think about it. Like, if the relevant variable for any particular thing, and again, not getting into people's subconscious because that's too hard, and I think we all have too many skeletons of our own in our own subconsciouses, so we need to be wary of throwing stones at others for that kind of thing. However, here's a good way I like to think about it is like, okay, I don't like Tom Morello because he's black. I like him because he's a fucking amazing guitar player mm-hmm. in well, a great band. It's, right? You've said this before. It's like, we don't like good movies because who's the leading star in that movie? This is the problem with identity politics. In yeah, general, yeah, yeah. It's like, it shouldn't matter. But, and I, I, I will acquiesce to the arguments that it has mattered in the past, that people have not been allowed to do these things. And so I understand that there are And it's a messy, messy process to figure out how to make sure everyone gets a fair shot at the starting line. Yeah, there there are there are moral victories that have been achieved by people being allowed to do this. I understand those arguments. And maybe this is me being a unicorn instead of a rhinoceros. I'm not sure. But I would like to think that we should be judging people. Well, I mean, what is it that Martin Luther King said? By the Not by the color of their skin, but the, by the content of their character. Like, yeah. Well, it's good to have dreams. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'll just keep dreaming. <laughs> well, he had one. Yeah. <laughs> true, true. Anyway, yeah, no. But I mean, like, so with Tom Morello has dark skin right but that's not why i like him no i like him he's a great problem the same way i didn't well i don't even know what he's doing right now but like i don't dislike michael vick because he's black i disliked him because he made dogs fight each other for money 
right? Yes. Like the relevant variable is the thing they do, the choices they make, the things, right? And I think that that is a, a good way to think about it, which is why, like, Sweeney is a badass, and he's great, and he's such a good mentor because and of his... And he has two PhDs, too. Yeah, because of how strong of character he is. And then Cameron Alexander, I wrote, preying on the lonely and impressionable people to join the ranks. So I was like, oh, man, these skinheads are the OG incels. <laughs> <laughs> right? Oh, no. Incels before there were incels. And, and then I'm like, well, how do you help those people who... So they don't drift so far... And I thought about this thing that Steven Pinker again pointed out, which got him in a lot of trouble because people on the internet and in the world are <laughs> passionately committed to not thinking clearly about things, where he said, Pinker said, make sure hard things have a mainstream outlet so people don't just learn about stuff from things like the alt-right. And his point was how potential genetic or biological differences between men and women, how there actually needs to be mainstream outlets to talk about things like biology and potentially even evolutionary psychology so that people aren't learning about these things from bigots well because you don't want to be in a situation where you don't want to learn the derek facts from derek exactly exactly i love that point like that's the danger that's why i talked about 99 percent good food rat poison being 99 percent good food you don't i mean i guess flat earthers i don't really know how they pull it off but but you don't really just come to believe some complete idiocy. Like, we do ourselves a disservice by claiming that racists are just knuckle-dragging Neanderthals. Another reason I like this movie. Derek's articulate. Cam's articulate. Danny's articulate. People don't follow just losers. Like, right. Hitler was articulate. I imagine Richard Spencer is very articulate. But that's what I'm saying. These people are not just... like. We get in our minds... Probably Louis Farrakhan, too. was pretty articulate. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right? Well, I mean, Stalin, yeah. Lenin. They were all... Mao. They were all articulate. The th People don't follow idiots, right? And we do ourselves a complete disservice by claiming everything those people believe is stupid. And you're stupid and evil and wrong if you believe those things. Mm -hmm. Well, if that... You have to confront their ideas on their merit and destroy yeah. them at that level. Well, and again, why it's so important to have like a, a, a like a mainstream ideas. for a better for lack of a better term, a mainstream talk about hard things, and that is, I think, regrettably something disappearing from the discourse. I don't in the think world I don't right okay. I don't think it's disappearing. I I think it's very hard for humans to do. Remember when you were talking about um, the liberal mind, one of the first birthplaces of the liberal mind is is those, you know, thousand sanities? Yeah. Well, that's not an easy thing to do. The easy thing to do is to not question yourself, to not wonder whether you could be right or wrong, but to say, this is the truth, and and then build off that. That is but, I mean, so much easier. What if a lot of these skinhead guys in this movie could learn some like some statistics about immigration from a teacher in school or like a professor at a local college rather than Derek or Cam Alexander who are clearly using them for their own agendas like there might be factual truths but just unless it can be contextualized by people who are experts in particular fields and recognized so you know kind of by peers peer review etc like the scientific process the irony knows no bounds here Pinker was hounded himself online well, for that, making this, that point. This is what I mean, right? right? Yeah. My point is, 
maybe that's a little bit unicorny and not rhinoceros in the sense maybe we're misunderstanding human psychology. I think, well, <laughs> my underlying faith in everything, including why people will, on balance, like this podcast, even if most people who contact us don't, right. <laughs> is that I think people are actually much more resilient in the majority than are given credit for by the people who make the most noise. Right. So even though maybe you know, a handful of very influential online people gave Pink a hard time, called them alt-right. Everyone who listened to the clip, or like 95% of the people who actually listen to the clip, like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> That's another bad thing about humans is we're more likely to go after something we don't like and like express our distaste for it than we are to thank people for saying something we agree yeah, with. Which is why I like radical positive honesty. Yes. Intentional yes. positivity based on things we noticed about someone. Um, Seth. Direct quote. We don't know him and we don't want to know him. Seth is, you know, the racist friend. And I wrote, a hidden bad conscience betraying the knowledge that getting to know someone could undermine your worldview. True. So Seth Which knows, we discussed. Yeah. right? Yeah. All right. General thoughts. These are some of the most uncomfortable scenes I've ever seen in a movie. <laughs> okay. And Edward Norton is an acting god. Yeah, he did Holy well. shit. Is he incredible. I noticed the beginning and the end of the movie is a beautiful shore with waves lapping. And so I interpret that as the movie's way of saying that beauty is beyond race and should be the focus because it's like a beautiful beach, a beautiful sunset, really nice music kind of overplaying. It's really the only two scenes of the movie that are could be called beautiful. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, like cinematography is beautiful in lots of the, sure, yeah, but I mean, like art. the the actual focus of the oh, aesthetic, beauty, yeah, yeah. yeah, and I love that because it's like your race is irrelevant for how beautiful a sunset on the beach is, yeah. And then there's like a weird joy that the white supremacists get from their jingles and their quotes, <laughs> right? <laughs> like there's a there's a part where I think Seth is singing is like the white man marches on, and he loves his. His little like, <laughs> quote, and I and so I wrote the stupid memes to stop people from actually thinking. Oh, okay. You know, yeah. All Seth has to say is the white man marches on, and he's like justified in his own <laughs> worldview, right? It's like, well, and that not, happens all the time. That's not a yeah. great argument. Uh, the basketball scene early in the movie. Yeah. Uh, so I wrote absolute brutality of survivalism and tribalism. Like everything I see and notice about the world makes me think more and more that Jean-Jacques Rousseau is just fucking crazy. <laughs> so you're more of a Hobbesian then? Well. Is life short or nasty British and short? The dark parts of the human temperament. Violent delights have violent ends, you know, and that's like the story of our I know that I should know that from Shakespeare, species. but I know it from Westworld. So. Yeah, that's how I know it too. <laughs> and then, so this was so important to me. Humor is the first thing that bonds Derek and Lamont when Lamont pretends to be a dumb kkk guy yes so that's like the very first moment of bonding is uh, lamont puts a sheet over top of his head crosses his eyes like oh i'm just a dumb guy we're gonna go kill some people you know and oh, it's I like don't like black people <laughs> yeah, yeah, and now yeah. our friend derek's probably in prison <laughs> hanging out with a black people <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah exactly and like this is so funny because he just keeps the joke going yeah. and going and so it just made me think like i like, too, like, I like lamont's humor he's yeah a oh yeah lamont fun. is very funny and to me, it's just more evidence that humor is a universal glue mm -hmm. for people, you know? So nothing is ever so serious that it can't use a little humor. Uh, the two-way street of empathy. Lamont telling the black guys in jail to leave Derek alone because he understands not having the authority on your side and the abuse that's possible. You know, I was like, wow, that is some high-level thinking by Lamont. 
Final thoughts, David, on this movie. Ooh. Honestly, at the end of watching this movie, you get a little bit sad that things haven't changed at all. In fact, in some ways, I guess it seems like they're getting worse. In the in the general scheme, in, yeah, in, like in, the, in the white, the white, well, oh, you mean like actually today? Yeah, like in 2019. If, it right. feels like the tensions are higher, maybe even than they were then. Now, I don't have a lot of recollections from then. I was pretty young, but my perception is that there's still so much tension and anger and 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 hatred and 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 like we've talked about earlier in the podcast. Now we have identity politics, and suddenly. Everyone's part of a tribe, and 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 we're seeing these tribes grow. And as we talked about earlier in the podcast too, we're seeing these shooters going out and doing these things based on ideology. And we're and we're asking. I think what we have to ask ourselves is, why is it so important that you define yourself by some innate characteristic instead of defining yourself? by a progress a development a changing like why do we have to be rocked when we could be living creatures we're not we're not stagnant we do not need to be trapped in like this is what i'm saying to myself really it's like so much of our lives gets consumed by i'm part of this group i believe this thing and and then you hang out with people in that group and you talk about that thing and how you believe in it and that's all fine and like that that's basically human but at least have the decency to understand that your group isn't necessarily right and that that was what i took away is like we are headed down a bad path if we don't do something well um hopefully movies like this are reminders of that because my like major takeaway from this movie is how it's that line, hate is baggage. And nothing that, and like Sweeney said, nothing that Derek did made his life an ounce better, you know? And how it's not until you let go of those prejudices that you can really start living. And that is what's so cool is that I think when this movie, like this movie has been staring at the abyss the whole time, the whole runtime, you're staring into the abyss. And what I liked is that even when the revelation comes and the change of heart happens, it doesn't mean the abyss is gone, right? Because Danny still, he gets killed. The abyss is still there staring right back at him. And yet, even though the abyss doesn't go your way, uh, like the the abyss doesn't go away if you have a change of heart or change of mind if you don't change your heart or your mind about things like prejudicial or hate you'll never be able to take a step away from it mm-hmm. you'll never be able to start moving away from the abyss exactly and i think that what this movie leaves me with is at least an ability to realize that there is a possibility to take that first step away from the abyss and that's don't feel good about that in the sense that you have to it's a lifetime it's a lifetime worth of work walking away from the abyss but you know you gotta start somewhere (laughs) might as well start walking yeah (laughs) and so you know hate is baggage and you don't want to be pissed off all the time hey so luke yeah how do you move a mountain how 
one rock at a time. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's tr- I guess that's true. <laughs> so anyway, just before we leave you, I want to leave you with the last quote from Abraham Lincoln that Danny uses to end his paper off because I thought it was beautiful. And it's also, like we talked about Steven Pinker before, uh, the title of his 2011 book, Better Angels of Our Nature, Why Violence Has Declined, which is, you know, a tome <laughs> on why we're living by far in the most peaceful times, which again, like this is a whole other podcast episode, but if we could become a little bit more empirical, we'd probably be a lot less hysterical. <laughs> <laughs> and about our times. Okay, and that's one thing, but that could change. Like, Sure, that's yes. The thing. It always can, Yeah, but perspective helps. Yes, yes. Anyway, the quote is, We are not enemies, but friends. We must not be enemies. Though passion may have strained, it must not break our bonds of affection. The mystic chords of memory will swell when again touched, as surely they will be, by the better angels of our nature. This has been another episode of Really True Fiction. My name is Luke Mason. And I'm David Parker. Have a great time. See you next time. Bye-bye.